You're listening to Trek FM. Good morning, Captain. Good morning, Captain. A woman? Crew. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly goes on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jera, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, I have co-host Sue. Hi, everybody. She's not a woman. She's a crew member. (laughs) That's right. Well, also a woman and a crew member. And uh, we also have today with us special guest Alex Knapp, Associate Editor for Science at Forbes. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be breaking barriers today. Yes. (laughs) Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of your history with Star Trek? I've watched Star Trek. It's actually one of my earliest memories. Uh, I watched uh, with my dad. When I was young, we watched the original series in syndication. I vividly remember being jazz about the next generation starting, uh, which started when I was eight years old. I remember watching Encounter of Farpoint at TV, being very excited, and I've you know pretty much watched it live since. So yeah, I'm disturbingly know a lot about Star Trek. <laughs> I, I think it would take a lot to disturb us and most of our listeners. That's so a fair you're point. in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> We would find lack of knowledge disturbing. Oh, yes, that's a different franchise. <laughs> fake geek girl, fake geek girl. Uh, so, uh, kidding. Today, the, the reason that we had you on, Alex, is to we're going to talk about male allies in the Star Trek universe. So I thought that we should start off with a discussion about what does it mean to be an ally? So... I hate to put you on the spot, Alex, but maybe I'll start with you. Like, what, when you, uh, when we asked you to come discuss this topic, what did you think about what does it mean to be a good ally? Like, what were you looking for in some of the characters you've considered? I looked for two things when I was looking at this. The first half of it is are these men who give respect to and treat women as equals? The second part of it is also how they deal with ideas of masculinity with other men and how they deal with other men and how they relate to women or even how they relate to each other, whether they're relating to other men in a way that's kind of traditionally macho or toxically masculine, that kind of thing, which would be bad, or if they're trying to kind of offer alternatives, which would be good. So to me, I think both halves of that are very important, both making space for women and treating women and other marginalized groups with respect and giving them space to thrive, but also part of being a male ally is dealing with other men and making sure they're doing that too. Um, how about you, Sue? Well, so did we actually talk about what being an ally means? No. What does it mean to you <laughs> or other people that you wish to quote? Well, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Jara. Well, in general, being an ally is someone who is not part of a community or a marginalized group fighting on behalf of that marginalized group. So we're talking about a white person who is fighting against racism or a straight person who is fighting for LGBTQIAP plus rights. So it's it's helping from the outside. And there's a lot of times a danger when you're an ally of overstepping your boundaries. So for me, the the sign of a good ally is someone who amplifies the message of this marginalized group without speaking over it. And you do that when you read an article by retweeting it and telling people that they should really read it without adding your own opinion to it. You do that if you're at a rally by if, if a news reporter comes to you, you say, you shouldn't be talking to me, you should be talking to them. 
you put the attention where it needs to be. And that's what supports the action of that community. Yeah, for sure. Um, so a couple of quotes that I pulled out. Um, one is by Anne Bishop, which is, I think, basically the most basic definition of allyship, which is allies are people who recognize the unearned privilege they receive from society's patterns of injustice and take responsibility for changing these patterns. So that's fairly straightforward. But then some of what you were getting at was also in um, an article by Jamie Ott at Everyday Feminism. And she talks about how allyship is an ongoing process. It's not like a core part of your identity. So there, like you said, there's danger in overstepping, but also overstating it. Like, well, I'm an ally, so I couldn't possibly say anything offensive or I couldn't possibly have upset you without realizing that it's not something that you just decide one day you're an ally and then you don't have to do any more work. It is actually an ongoing process that involves work. She says, as someone striving to be an ally, the most important thing we can do is listen to as many voices of those we're allying ourselves with as possible. But then also acknowledges don't expect marginalized people to teach you because they're using a lot of their energy already fighting these struggles. So expecting them to do this extra work of educating you is not necessarily fair, that you should do the work to educate yourself and to look for people from those communities who are talking to to listen to. So do we think that like pretty much covers a basic definition? And of course, we'll talk about it more in relationship to our characters in Star Trek. Anything else to add on that? I don't think so. Just the, the real emphasis on listening, listening and trying to understand and empathize. Yeah. Um, I mean, another phrase that people use is, um, you know, acting in solidarity with this community, which some people prefer because ally, like I said, it, it kind of implies like this is my identity instead of it's a process. And when you talk about acting in solidarity with, it's about more of a process. All right. So we put out the call for comments and we asked for, like, who are people's best male allies? And we're going to go into some of those examples. But first, I thought I would ask you if you had someone that came to mind, first of all, as, like, this is a great male ally in Star Trek. Maybe I will start with you again, Alex. The the obvious answer is Cisco. Like, that's the first person who came to my mind. But when I thought about this, because you had given me this definition of allyship being a process, I ended up as my pick, uh, going with Worf, who I think over the course of Next Generation to the end of Deep Space Nine really has this arc of, if you think of Klingon culture as being, you know, toxic masculinity writ large, which in some ways it is, the way he grapples with that, works with the women on the crew of the Enterprise, his relationships with Kalar, the two Daxes, Counselor Troy, um, and his relationship with the Empire itself, he really has an arc of kind of both helping the women in his life and helping amplify what they do. He listens to women. The reason why Garon is you know, no longer head of the High Council is because Worf listened to what Ezri Dax had to say, agreed with it, and changed the direction that he was going to act. And so I think his arc is a great uh, example of that, whereas some of the other examples that would come to mind were people who are kind of already there, which is awesome to see. But that model of progression in Worf, I thought, made him pretty exemplary. Huh, that's really fascinating. Um, I had really never thought of 
Worf as like an ally-like character. I can see what you're saying about the listening. I think that's a really important part of it. I would say that like where I would hope, you know, if we're seeing this as maybe Worf is, you know, he's, I don't even think by the end of DC's night, he's like fully really there, but where you would want him to go next would be like actually working to change the systemic issues in the Klingon Empire. Yeah. And yeah, I, um, I made a note, I I call him, he's like the Ron Swanson of Star Trek. (laughs) Oh my gosh, so he's totally got is. these <laughs> very traditional values, but by listening to his women friends, he expands and, you know, grows and changes. And so that's that's where I am. And Lower Decks is one of the best examples. His relationship mm. with Cedo Jaxa is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he also, um, he grows a lot in his attitudes towards other species and that he starts out with, like, a really gut reaction to, like, Ferengi and uh, Romulans. He he definitely challenges himself, um, even though it's not his instinct to do so. Over time, he challenges himself to respect others and not immediately judge them based on where they come from. Yeah. And uh, I, I also like that he kind of breaks down his own masculinity, whereas, you know, the first time he's discommodated uh, in Next Generation, he's it's very shameful. The way other Klingons view him, even though he did what he thought was the right thing for the Empire, whether it was or not is a totally different debate. He thought it was the right thing, but he still felt that shame. By the second time around in, in DS9, he couldn't care less almost <laughs> what other Klingons thought. You know, he was living by his own code. And there's a couple key times in DS9 I find really interesting where Worf will throw a fight deliberately um, with other Klingons in order to make something happen. There, there's a great episode where he and Jadzia are on a ship of a group of disgraced Klingons and he picks a fight with the captain and deliberately loses so the captain gets his honor back, you know, kind of foregoing his own glory for that. And of course, you know, when he defeats Cowron, he doesn't take the mantle of high council for himself. He gives it to the person he thinks is the best leader, which is Martok. And I think that's, you know, part of it, too, is, is breaking down that you know, toxic masculine Klingon stuff and, you know, taking what's good out of it. Uh, but then rejecting the stuff that that isn't good. Cool. Sue, do you have any thoughts on Worf? Like you, I never would have thought of him that way, but you're, you make total sense, absolutely. Do you have a pick for ally that you want to throw in here? Well, I think that a lot of people's gut reaction is probably Cisco. I think he's probably the most obvious among our characters, possibly because I was listening to our episode on the Ferengi again recently, I would say that Rom and Zek can probably be mentioned. Mm. But I actually want to bring up James Tiberius Kirk. Mm -hmm. And um, Kirk has a reputation, of course, for being a womanizer. But when you actually look at what takes place in the original series, it's not entirely accurate. And we've talked about this on the show before, how a lot of the really sexist lines come from Spock. And a lot Mm -hmm. of really feminist, especially for the 60s, lines come from Captain Kirk. And if you actually look, there are feminist Captain Kirk memes online, and they're just actual lines from the show that you really you don't realize when you're watching it but you read it and you're like oh yeah he did say that and that is a great great point and it it's kind of fun to see that still 
you know, 50 years later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when I um, I was chatting with some friends about this and um, immediately they were like, oh, I feel like Captain Kirk is like the Don Draper of the Star Trek universe. And I'm like, you are not giving Kirk enough credit. We actually had a comment. I don't know if you want to read it, Sue, from the Iron Hobbit who commented through my Trekkie feminist Tumblr. The Iron Hobbit says, my vote is Kirk. Yes, James bunk anything in a skirt, Tiberius Kirk. Reference the Mark of Gideon. And she put, or they put in a YouTube clip. Uh, He's not having any of your pro-life, anti-contraception, pro-death penalty BS. There are other examples in TOS too, but this was the first one I could think of and find video for. Yeah, we'll post the video in the show notes, but it's the clip in the Mark of Gideon where um, the dude on the planet is basically like, we value all life. And Kirk's like, we, why do you kill people? And he's like, we have too many people on our planet. And Kirk goes like, we have such a thing as birth control. And Guy's like, but life is sacred. (laughs) Um, And it's awesome. Like, I actually forgot that scene because I haven't watched that episode in a while. And it is, I mean, it's, I would say it's like, up there with the premier of the West Wing in terms of like an argument on birth control in pop culture and more like more notable because of the time. Any thoughts on on Kirk, Alex? I, w- I would definitely agree w- with the overall feeling of Kirk. And, uh, you know, part of um, where this comes through is, you know, his actual love interests, not people you know who he might have been trying to seduce to get away or uh you know or to save his ship or whatever but his actual love interest love interest with the exception of the robot were (laughs) all (laughs) like really formidable independent driven women i mean every time we meet an ex of kirk's you know they're always doing something awesome like creating life out of nothing or you know, court-martialing him. (laughs) (laughs) And that's even a contrast to, like, Picard, who's, you know, he has Philippa, who's an awesome ex, but then, you know, Janice Manaheim is, like, why are there housewives in the Federation (laughs) living by themselves on an outpost? That doesn't even make sense. And why is Picard into that? I don't get that. But, so, yeah, even through his love interest, I mean, Edith Keeler, uh, the whole nine yards, I mean, I think that also shows that he really values um, independence and and looks for women he sees as equals to be love interests. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's a good point that, you know, you can be an ally and still have relationships. It's not, you know, about putting women on a pedestal or anything. It's about respecting and being open in communication and um, you know, not looking for someone because you think they're going to be subordinate to you, but an expectation that you're, they're going to be an equal. And we're definitely going to talk more about Picard. But well, before we do, um, I I will put in my plug for Cisco. He may be obvious, but I feel like he deserves a little bit of discussion. I think that we can see from really early on the way that Cisco behaves as an ally off the bat so you're right like we don't see him go through quite the process that we see someone like Worf go through but I think that we see him like right off the bat recognize that Kira in particular and other Bajorans that he deals with have dealt with something that he has not experienced you know he's lived through really rough stuff but he still realizes that it's different from being the subject of genocide and from, you know, growing up in camps and watching your parents and family killed as a result of racial hatred. And the way that he embodies that is by really respecting 
for example, Kira's interest in um, pursuing things that are important to her as a Bajoran. So there's like two episodes in the first season, at least, where he allows her to sort of take the lead on a case. One of them is past prologue and the other one is um, duet. Because even though she's not objective, he recognizes that her knowledge gives her important insight that actually might be more productive in salt in serving justice in the long run. And um, I think that that's, that's a really powerful statement. And even though it makes him really uncomfortable, the role that he's been cast in by a lot of Bajorans, he really tries his best to listen to them. Even Kai Wen, who is basically his nemesis, or maybe not quite Galdicott level, but not his friend, he listens to her even when, like, whenever she comes to him, he listens to her. There's um, the episode in the cards, which is otherwise a humorous episode, but it features Kaiwin coming to him for legitimate advice, and he gives her legitimate advice in good faith. He doesn't write her off, even though, you know, she's another powerful figure, but because, but in her position, she's still less powerful than him as a captain in the Federation. Yeah, I see Cisco as a really interesting character, because in some ways... I mean, the direct comparison that everybody makes is to Picard, right? In some ways, he's more soft-spoken than Picard, but he's also more of a guy who I think relies on his gut. And we also see him several times throughout DS9. We see, we, we learn that he's really aware of history. You know, he knows about the Bell Riots and he knows about about the civil rights movement. And so he's really aware of Earth history and his own cultural history. And that is a great person because there's at least some understanding there to be in this situation on Deep Space Nine as Bajor is recovering from the occupation. Absolutely. I would, um, just another couple examples of times when he demonstrates that kind of allyship is, you know, he stands up for uh, Bashir when it's revealed that Bashir has been genetically engineered because it's not fair to prosecute something that wasn't his fault and he's a valuable person. He also, I think one of the most powerful um, kind of Cisco moments is, um, I believe the episode is, there's uh, Paradise Lost or Paradise, um, where he's on Earth challenging the blood screenings for to detect changelings. Um, you know, of course, he does end up sacrificing some of his ethics a little bit later on as part of the war, but he he's pretty consistent about how it's unfair to persecute or to violate people's privacy for the sake of screening for changelings. Well, what's interesting about that is he was all for the blood screenings until his dad, a civilian, not in Starfleet, said, this is a terrible idea, and he listened. So, which I, I, I think is an important part of that. And he listens a lot and changes his mind. Another great example of allyship for Cisco is his support of Nog's entrance into Starfleet, um, who he couldn't stand Nog at the beginning of the series, uh, but came to, you know, understand and appreciate him and really support him. Absolutely. 
Okay, well, why don't we go back to Picard? Because a couple of us have mentioned that. We do have one comment that I also got through Tumblr from Aura218. Um, she said, absolutely Picard. He always stands up for the little guy, be it androids' rights or peasants or a pre-warp society. And he may not like children, but he always makes space for them in policy. Also, he keeps his crew in mind. He's the one who said no one is alone on the Enterprise. He may have been standoffish, but he made sure that the crew leaves no one behind, such as when he made sure people fixed the Barclay problem. And he's not afraid to stand up to people in power. Admirals, Planet PMS, (laughs) is that Angel One? (laughs) To remind them to do right by their own marginalized people. I'm going to assume that's Angel One. Um, (laughs) uh, Listen to our episode on matriarchies for more on that. We also, I believe we had a comment on our Facebook too about um, Picard in Measure of a Man as a particular example. Where are you guys standing on Picard demonstrating allyship? I think Picard, because he is so standoffish for a lot of TNG, we don't see him interact with most of his senior crew in a super, like, the same way Cisco does. Like, a lot of them are colleagues, and they're not necessarily friends. Uh, There are a few exceptions to that, but I think that, at least for his crew, gives him just fewer opportunities to act as an ally because there isn't that closeness there in terms of the bigger picture these uh, planets being fighting for what's right absolutely but it's it's a little more for me anyway a bit of a gray area with Picard I think part of the deal with Picard is that in some ways he's a a fake it till you make it guy Uh, he has such a strong sense of duty that I think he follows that duty even if he's not intuitively or emotionally comfortable with it and that's kind of reflected in his standoffishness but that same sense of duty will drive him to probably do things uh, a lot of people wouldn't and then one great example of allyship since i just mentioned lower decks before let me mention it again Uh, you find out in that episode that cedo jaxa who is part of the red squad incident that was covered in the first duty picard who uncovered that cover-up made sure she was assigned to the Enterprise so she would get a fair shake when you find out that she was not getting a fair shake in the Academy or from other officers. Yeah, I would say that it's pretty cool that, like, basically the first episode of The Next Generation in some ways is about allyship. It's about um, Troy's the first one that clues them into it, but learning to listen to the jellyfish being that's being manipulated. And that is basically the test that Q puts them through to find out if humanity has evolved is their ability to understand that this is unique life and to not overlook it and let it be oppressed because it's something that's different. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. I think Picard gets into a lot of situations. He's not the only one but where he ends up having to make a choice between, and this is complicated, so I'm interested in your thoughts on it, but about like where allyship is less possible because of the prime directive. So I'm thinking particularly of like an example, like who watches the watchers where he is able to help them more because the prime directive was already violated. And to some extent, like, the Prime Directive is really well-intentioned, but it prevents or is written to prevent, in some ways, acting in the wishes of the oppressed group. 
because the idea is we'll be messing with their natural course of events. So, I mean, probably the best worst example of this would be Dear Doctor, <laughs> but uh, the Enterprise episode where Archer lets a whole planet die because that's what evolution wanted. And there's so many problems with that. Um, but then he's like, one day we'll have a directive that will mean it was okay to do this. And that would be to me like a, a an example of bad allyship, even if you agreed with the decision as part of the prime directive, because these, the people wanted this help they asked for it they know it they understood what it meant and he was not able to give that and well if if we're going to talk bad allyship and (laughs) and, and picard i think we have to bring up the perfect mate right oh god (laughs) yes that actually yeah another example on my prime directive uh allyship list so yeah go ahead well i mean beverly crusher's the only sane person on the starship who's like (laughs) I get the prime directive and we don't interfere, but does that mean we have to transport sex slaves across the galaxy? I don't understand where that comes from. And then the end is almost worse because she, I'm going to bond with you and get a sense of duty. So now I'm okay with being a slave. Woohoo! Like, I don't, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just awful. Start to finish. I can't Ugh. deal with it. <laughs> the Enterprise D, I hate to say it, has some problems. Um, <laughs> the, just think about how many times members of the crew have been violated physically mm-hmm. or mentally or emotionally. And almost every time there is a meeting or a public interrogation about it. <laughs> yeah. That's not okay. Contrast this, believe it or not, with the episode of Enterprise Fusion. Yeah. This is, for me, this is like the one example of Archer's good allyship. Because T'Pol goes to him and says, this happened. And there are no questions. He believes her and he's angry. And he goes and talks to them about it. And, I mean, it's, honestly, it's no questions asked. There's no meeting about it. There's no interrogation about it. He's just he's taking action. Yeah, and he doesn't patronize her either he isn't uh, he basically says what do you need and he makes sure she's safe but he doesn't you know force her to discuss it in detail or to at least not until stigma (laughs) yeah but no i totally agree with you um you know archer i would say is definitely the least ally of the captains but that is actually a good example i would say the reason just to justify that remark a bit further is that I, obviously, xenophobia towards Vulcans is a pretty significant knock on allyship, but he he also just tends to react really defensively when people disagree with him. And, you know, it's hard, like part of the process, you know, I, I try to work on this when I'm trying to be an ally in terms of um, racial inequality or LGBTQ issues. And it can be uncomfortable sometimes, but that's just part of the process. And being defensive actually prevents you from moving forward. And it's better to just like take a step back and be like, huh, what do I not, did I not understand before? Well, one episode I actually wanted to kind of connect to the perfect mate 
um, was brought up by um, another Tumblr reader, Chevronite, who said, brought up the episode with Trip and the third gender race, sort of like the Riker agender episode, which is, uh, so they're referring to the outcast is the Riker episode. And uh, the Enterprise episode is cogenitor. And I think that this is, this is an episode I struggle with because I think it was really well-intentioned and that at the time it aired, it was really progressive, but it has quite a few issues in Cogenitor, uh, the crew encounters a new race of aliens who require a third sex in order to procreate. And the third sex, uh, the Cogenitors, are treated as subordinate. They're treated as items. And Trip encounters, there's a couple that brings their Cogenitor on board. And uh, Trip encounters it and basically decides before ever exchanging more than the word hello that the cogenitor is oppressed. And, you know, it's clear that it's meant to be that way, that, uh, and basically decides to go behind the couple's back, teach the cogenitor how to read and play Go and all about Earth, because the cogenitor has been told not to read. And they make friends. The cogenitor names itself Charles, even though it doesn't have a recognizable gender and it's named Charles after Trip, Trip and Archer and Flocks and basically everyone on the Enterprise persists in calling Charles her, which is that's an example of, I think, at the time that was considered progressive because like it would have been considered insulting to call someone it, um, but now would be considered not really respecting that person's ability to identify with a gender. But the point is like Trip decides right away the cogenitor is oppressed. I know what's best for the cogenitor. And what ends up happening is that the couple takes the co- the cogenitor requests asylum, which Archer denies. Uh, the couple takes the cogenitor back and the cogenitor commits suicide. So it's like a really disturbing episode that was clearly very well intentioned, but I think demonstrates some of the pitfalls of trying to be an ally without really listening to the group of people that are experiencing oppression or marginalization. I think you can draw a parallel with that episode, uh, not necessarily in what they were trying to do, but in, in the same kind of setup to the DS9 episode, Captive Pursuit. Oh, yeah, Tosk. Yeah. You beat me to it. I was going to say that one. <laughs> Great minds. <laughs> yeah, so this is the one where they, they find Tosk. He's the first alien visitor from, from the Gamma Quadrant. Uh, they're just, he's hanging out on the station, and then these hunters show up, and they don't really know what to do. They're horrified that this is uh, someone who is genetically engineered to be hunted, this intergalactic fox hunt, until O'Brien actually goes and listens to him, and realizes by listening that the best possible thing for Tosk is to be out on the run, essentially trying to outsmart his his hunters and that is what he considers honorable i always have mixed emotions about the ending to captive pursuit because how different is it really from the ending of the perfect mate where they're like well i guess she wants to be a sex slave sweet well i guess this guy wants to be hunted because he's been told his entire life that he wants to be hunted so it's all he knows so I don't know. It, it may, it's, it just, I think it just shows the, the pitfalls and the challenges. But they did handle it in a much more respectful way than The Perfect Mate. So points for that. <laughs> yeah, 
it's complicated because we're saying basically like listen to the oppressed group about what they want. But in these episodes, we often only see an example of one member of that group. And in real life, when we're looking at something, when we're looking at acting in solidarity with a group that's experiencing marginalization, we probably hope to talk to more than one person in that group because an individual might not be reflective of what the needs and wants are of that entire group. It reminds me too of when the doctor learns that there are legions essentially of holographic miners and doesn't really understand how how this could be happening. At the end, like the doctor is championing the rights of those holograms, but the rest of the Voyager crew ends up not being quite as understanding about that. But an episode where the doctor is a good ally is critical care, where he ends up being kidnapped and forced to work in basically an awful American style hospital system in a (laughs) future dystopia. Um, It's a fairly blatant attempt at an allegory, but he ends up realizing it's really unfair that the poor people can't get as good care as the rich people. And he's like treating cosmetic issues with far more care in the rich ward and in the poor ward, he's basically having to let people die and he ends up basically trying to help the patients with kind of a rebellion at the hospital and so that the doctor can be a good ally when he wants oh and in retrospect actually too unfortunately the end message of that is really problematic but the doctor is really like the only one who believes seven of nine when she says that she had this memory of being violated and having her nanoprobe stolen and he's really like acting to in what he thinks are her best interests. That's a great example. And it reminded me, uh, I guess I'm bringing it back to Cisco, when uh, Keiko realized that O'Brien had been kidnapped. He wasn't uh, because, you know, she saw him drinking coffee in the afternoon and Cisco didn't bat an eye before like, all right, well, let's go look into it. <laughs> not, oh, you're mm-hmm. grieving, not, oh, you know, whatever. Just, all right, we're going to we're going to take care of this. So, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. So while we're on Voyager briefly, we had a couple of comments, um, actually, about one particular cast member. Um, Sue, do you have Oren's comment handy? Oren wrote, watching Voyager, I've been impressed by how supportive Tuvok is to Seven, at least in season four and five. Everyone else, including Janeway, tries to bully Seven into becoming more human. Tuvok offers validation and trust. Yeah, and then uh, a Tumblr user, Grace Lee Whitney obviously not the actual Grace Lee Whitney, that's the Tumblr name, um, says Tuvok has a great line to Neelix in Elogium where Neelix doesn't know what he would be able to teach a daughter. And Tuvok replies, why would it be any different than what you would teach a son? Like Chakotay, Tuvok is also the best. So um, any any thoughts on Tuvok? I thought that was really interesting and I, I kind of agree. Yeah, I hadn't actually considered Tuvok. Um, when I was thinking Voyager, my first thought was Chakotay, but I... Uh... But I think Tuvok's also, yeah, I'm mean, definitely his interactions with Seven are fantastic. It's a little hard to see it. In some ways, it's hard to see it as allyship because he's kind of a fellow non-human helping out a non-human saying, hey, it's 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 cool not to have to be like these guys. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Vulcans are also, I mean, one of the founding members of the Federation and are apparently used to just being the one Vulcan on starships full of humans and, and are apparently cool with that. So uh, just judging by Star Trek. So I, he probably, it, it is probably more of an allyship moment, but I think that's maybe why I didn't think of it that way. 
Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. I mean, he's a lieutenant commander and he's Janeway's best friend, so he definitely has more power on the ship, even if you're right, he is kind of another outsider character. But I did think that was interesting. Uh, certainly, we see the same thing with the uh, Enterprise characters trying to bully to Paul into being more human, and it's rare that we get to really see an ally with her. Even Trip, um, when they're together, is always kind of poking fun at her and trying to get her to be more emotional than she's really comfortable with. And uh, that's that's something that annoys me a little bit about their relationship. Yeah, the thing about them trying to get Seven to be more human is not that this is correct, is that they, mm-hmm. they think of it as something that she lost, right? So they, yeah, they feel normal. like they're restoring her. Whether or not she wants that restoration is another question. But with T'Pol, they're making fun of her. They think that yeah. all this teasing, this be more human, just kind of like what they did with Spock. They think it's mm-hmm. funny. But Spock played along and sassed right back. And T'Pol mm-hmm. doesn't. Yeah, I think that's a huge difference. I, I think the fact that Spock gave as good as he got just made it part of his relationship with Kirk and McCoy in the way that, you know, some groups of friends are. As opposed to Paul, where it definitely never, ever, ever seemed welcome or encouraged. Mm-hmm. So, Alex, did you want to talk about Chakotay a little bit since you mentioned him? Well, I, I mean, Chakotay has one of the biggest moments of allyship right off the bat when here he is, the leader of this Maquis crew, and they, you know, get thrown into the Delta Quadrant, and he immediately just says, We have to unite, and it's going to be behind Janeway, and he is really almost through the whole series, Janeway's pretty much biggest booster in in a lot of ways. And and then later-ish was Seven? Not quite as much, though. (laughs) (laughs) Ish. Let's go with ish. Just his relationship with Janeway, I think, is a great example. The way he defers to her and says, yeah, of course you're in charge. You're the Starfleet captain, basically. He was the fierce warrior, as he (laughs) says in Resolutions. (laughs) And she... Helped him find peace. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, I'm actually a a fan of that episode, except for that one scene. But uh, Chakotay, yeah, I think I think that's fair. He, I, I like how he gives Janeway the ability to talk about the things she's concerned about. She's able to trust him without feeling like she's going to be undermined, and he also. You know, he makes his his Maquis crew member like crew members like Bellana like they feel able to come talk to him, but he isn't going to you know help them foment a revolution or anything. Yeah, and and I think also just the fact that he is he's kind of, he's soft spoken, um, he's resolute, but he never really gets loud or angry. He just kind of models a different kind of masculinity, which is I also think important mm-hmm. in in terms of allyship he, he's not a blusterer by any means which i always found refreshing when i watched voyager mm-hmm. cool um okay well going back to our listener comments we had a comment from tempest in blue on tumblr about another tng character we haven't discussed yet which was riker riker right off the bat riker Specifically Riker in The Outcast. So we did, we talked a bit about Cogenitor, but we didn't really talk about The Outcast. Tempest in Blue says it may not be the best episode overall. The allegory is pretty blunt, but even so, his advocacy for Soren shows him to be an open-minded, pro-queer and pro-trans and willing to fight for Soren's right to be female. Thoughts on, thoughts on Riker or The Outcast? I think that 
Riker's a lot like Kirk in this way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and interestingly enough, Jonathan Frakes, God bless him, really wanted it to be an actor who played Soren mm-hmm. and really fought for it from what I understand behind the scenes, but didn't get it. So I, some of that character might be informed by by Frakes, who by all accounts I'm aware of is, is a pretty good ally in real life. Mm-hmm. I think that the outcast is a good example because of the way that he listens to Soren. And it's not like in Cogenitor, where Trip assumes right away that what's happening is wrong. Um, it takes Soren to say, hey, this is what I want. This is who I am. And uh, she still gets to have her voice. He doesn't take over. And at the end of the day, he has to accept her decision in the unfortunate ending. But I think it, it's powerful that he takes the lead from her and he supports her without telling her how she should feel or what she should think about the situation. Yeah. And another thing about Riker that I like is that except with Klingons, he generally doesn't have any patience for like macho crap. Mm-hmm. And there's a great example of this in the price when for whatever reason, Troy thinks that Rawl is a good catch. And there's a great scene in 10 forward where Rawl is trying to get a rise out of Riker being like, ha ha ha, I'm with your girl. What are you going to do? And he just says, I hope you're making her happy. And I hope she makes you a better person. (laughs) And, and, you know, I'll support her, whatever. And just doesn't take that bait at all and just walks off. And uh, I always really liked that particular Riker moment. That's a good point. I, I think that it's a little hard for us to navigate because So we're dealing with a show where at the time the show was written and produced, women Mm -hmm. were not equal. In the era it's supposed to be depicting, women are equal. So I think that there are examples where Riker's role as a commander, like he dresses down women characters, like Mm -hmm. his, the way that he treats uh, Troy in... uh, uh, thine own self where she's taking the bridge officer exam and he's like tough love the situation and uh and also shelby is interesting but in a situation where you know he's a commander in a future where women are ostensibly equal it's not necessarily problematic plus he learns from shelby a lot yeah yeah and and he's wise enough to talk about talk to troy and say i miss that drive and ambition shelby has like why don't i have that anymore so yeah absolutely he's also a an ally really in race relations too one of my favorite star trek or star trek titan novels is uh the red king which is the second one and this is about like riker's command after uh he leaves the enterprise after nemesis and uh, i don't know if either of you have read this I have not, but I'm I'm interested now. <laughs> okay, so the reason I like it, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. It has um, awesome Romulan women characters in it, and uh, there's uh, some really cool stuff that Troy gets to do as a diplomat, but there's also a subplot going on about they need to choose what goes on the dedication plaque on the Titan, and because it's a novel, they're able to write in a lot more non-humanoid aliens, so they have two of the non-humanoid aliens one is a cyborg and one is something else i'm not sure but they they end up making a bet that riker is going to choose a quote by a human because he's human and also the first officer is human and they have this discussion kind of early on where troy calls out riker and the first officer and says like you know almost all the options i've heard from you 
both of you are very Earth-centric. Why aren't you considering the words of some non-human philosophers? And Vale, the first officer, is about to object, but then she's like, you're totally right. Troy suggests, like, some of Kalos's proverbs and even some of the Ferengi rules of acquisition, the Andorian speeches of Thalassar and the poetry of Shran. And uh, so two of these non-humanoid crew members make a bet, and then at the end of the day, they have this sort of powerful mission that they're on, and Riker comes out with the plaque and... Tuvok lifts the plaque. The words on the plaque are infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And it's a message about what they've learned during this mission about how important it is to not make assumptions about people and to really try and understand where you're coming from and include everyone. So highly recommend The Red King if you're interested in a Star Trek novel. You might want to read the first Titan novel first, but the second one will be totally cool. So Sue, we had another comment that we haven't read yet, which is about Rom. Yeah, this is from Pomegranate Seeds on Tumblr who says, Rom, I believe you're thinking about Rom. Throughout the course of DS9, he grows into such a compassionate character who will fight for himself and others around him. He formed a union to help the workers at Quark's Bar, he helped shape the Ferengi women's revolution, and he helped usher in an unprecedented era of social progress for Ferengi, which includes paying taxes for public works. He starts out like any other Ferengi, but he pays attention to his experiences throughout the series and pays attention to the cause and effect various things have on his life. Rom isn't privileged on all axes, but he does use the privilege he has as a Ferengi man to help usher in a new era for all Ferengi, who were not good at slash didn't want to be exploiting people, and especially Ferengi women. Granted, Rom was greatly influenced by his mother Ishka, and without Ishka, the Ferengi women's revolution wouldn't have happened. She was the driving force of the movement, but Rom respected and looked up to her for it and eventually joined the cause outright. Cool. Any thoughts on Rom, Alex? I, I don't know what I can add to that because that's pretty much perfect. <laughs> I, I would say the only thing I might mention is that another big influence on him was actually his own son, um, who was influenced by, you know, non-Federation ideas and in turn influenced his father. And I think the Rom-Nog relationship is really great. Actually, there's a ton of great father-son relationships in DS9. E- even Worf Alexander gets almost not terrible. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to say it, it's not bad, but it's, it's not as bad by the end of DS9. So I, I, I like that aspect of it, too. Well, I don't think we can count out Lita, either. Oh, no. Because she, I mean, she loves him, but she also has no issue calling him out on stuff. And he, and when she does, he listens. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, another example, which I totally, well, I'm going to actually quickly do another example that I think is not so good from Deep Space Nine while we're there, which is the episode Melora, I think is another one where Bashir, kind of like Trip and Cogenitor, not quite as as extreme, but he kind of makes the decision pretty early on that Melora would be better off if she were more normal, which is to say not in a wheelchair and more like him and the other DS9 crew members. And um, so he proposes that uh, Melora, that he could cure Melora of her quote unquote disability, which is actually just that 
she grew up in a different environment that makes her body not able to function in the same gravity. So I would call that like not a great example of allyship because she never asked for that. And she's certainly someone who's like fully capable, confident and intelligent. And instead, his whole mission in that episode is to try to make her a nicer person to deal with and preferably a person who can walk around without a wheelchair. So I don't know. Any thoughts on that episode? Yeah. (laughs) Bashir strikes me as... Not a good ally. (laughs) Well, right. But not not intentionally. Like, he's not he's not trying to do harm. He's not bigoted. He doesn't hate people in wheelchairs, right? Mm-hmm. But he assumes that what is best for her is what also would make him the most comfortable. Yeah. And that is a problem in our real world, right? I think that, that Julian Bashir wants to do the right thing, and he wants to help people. And I just think that he misses the step of educating himself and I think this this is clear in past tense as well because they they show up at these bell riots and Bashir hasn't heard of them but not only that like doesn't realize how bad things really were in that time period that they're in so in terms of these social issues Bashir is kind of in, in on in earth history or on deep space nine Bashir's kind of in the dark Right, because he hasn't Mm -hmm. done his research. That's the impression that I get. It's not intentional. He thinks he's doing the right thing because that's what his gut tells him to do. But he doesn't have that background and that education. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he tries in episodes like Statistical Probabilities, which is a whole other ball of wax that we're going to talk about probably in an ableism episode. But uh, that's the one where he has the, uh, the other genetically engineered people who are basically like psych patients that he tries to help be respected by Starfleet. And that is an episode more where he is actually listening to what they have to offer and realizing that they have more to offer than initially thought and then goes and uses his position to try to advocate for them. But you're right, he doesn't really have that... He doesn't default to that kind of position. And at the end of the day, when they don't really perform up to Starfleet's expectations and they get reinstitutionalized he just kind of like lets it go until they turn up again oh Bashir so the other TNG person I was thinking of right before we started this episode didn't occur to me initially but that is actually data and it's I guess like a little bit iffy I, I would say it's not iffy to design, assign gender to him because he's always, he's acted by a cis male actor. He's always referred to by male pronouns and by father and brother. So I don't think it's it's iffy to call him a male ally. But I think that Data, just by his, his default position is always to be curious. And I think that lends itself really well to allyship. And we do see that come into play in a lot of situations where he... He wants to understand why people are the way they are and the way that they feel and the way that they think. And that desire to understand others leads him to advocate for others in numerous episodes. So I just wanted to bring up data as another option. Absolutely. There's the example in The Offspring where Mm -hmm. he decides to let his child choose its gender. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't decide that he's going to have a daughter. But there's also the fact that, and I, I can't remember if this is explicitly stated or if it's my own thing that I'm putting on top of the characterization, 
but we see the rest of the crew advocate for data so many times that I think it's sort of a pay it forward kind of thing. You know, they did this for me and I'm going to do it for somebody else. Yeah, but the exocomps yeah. is the thing. Yeah. But also the most toys, mm-hmm. when uh, which is my favorite data episode. And um, when he when he brings that compatriot of Kivas Fajo, recognizes that she is as trapped and abused as he is and brings her over to his side. And, um, and then, in my reading of the episode, tried to kill Kivas Fajo for killing her, but... You know, they left it ambiguous, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Pen Pals is another episode of where Data uses influence to help someone who's uh, not, who's uh, more marginalized. In this case, just like a pre-warp civilization. But I think the thing about paying it forward is really interesting because in Anne Bishop's discussion on allyship, I just read, you know, a quick quote from her, but she also talks about how we can be better allies by understanding the ways that we ourselves have experienced discrimination or stereotyping or oppression and by using that knowledge to help us empathize with other people. So, you know, for myself as a cis white woman, I have not experienced racial oppression or really, I haven't really directly experienced um, homophobic or transphobic oppression, but as someone who has experienced sexism, I can try to tap into what that feels like and how I wish that people would ally with women to help women's equality and try to apply that behavior that I wish would happen in my work to ally with other communities. So just, yeah, so for like data, that could be an example is like he's seen how other people um, have advocated for him and he's using that to advocate for others. Like, if this is fair for me, why isn't it fair for this person? That is very well said. Thanks. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, um, we are nearing the end of our episode. Um, any more good, bad, terrible, amazing examples? I see, Alex, you had a note that you wanted to talk a bit more about Spock. Yeah. Well, yeah, Spock is bad in several episodes, but let <laughs> me just refer you to some excellent Women at Warp episodes. <laughs> Uh, that deal with specifically Wolf in the Fold, The Enemy Within, and the Janice Rand Beehive of Power episode, which I really loved, and Amok Time. I will I will refer you to those. They <laughs> said it better than I could. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's disappointing because Spock is supposed to be logical, and he ends up kind of reinforcing this idea that he ends up basically stating this fact that women are illogical and other awful things, which we discussed in those episodes. Um, I would say that we see a better Spock in the movies. I think that we could call him in some ways an ally to Savick. Definitely step back in Star Trek VI. So you can take a listen to our women in the TOS movies. But overall, I think the Spock has sort of abandoned the sexist rhetoric by that point, at least. I am reminded of a somewhat recent Metatrex episode, actually. The one where they are talking about poker and its, its iterations of Star Trek. And they bring up that Worf says something in an episode about, I don't remember what the name of the game is, but he says it's a woman's game because it favors a weak hand. Oh, yeah. 
Worf is kind of he's a bit all over the map and he he's he's written very inconsistently at the beginning of TNG in his comments on women so he has like the comment injustice about how like I can't sleep with a human woman because I'd basically break them <laughs> and uh he has a comment in there's uh oh in uh the outcast actually I believe that he makes a comment that's a bit like, I don't understand what the deal is here. I'd have to look up exactly what that was. But Worf is a bit all over the map. But then in the episode, the coming of age with the sort of teen punky blonde kid, mm-hmm. where he tells them, basically, you're a human and among humans, women can do anything men can. So I feel like they shifted him after a while, just realizing, like, dude, you wouldn't be able to serve in Starfleet if you were actually saying this stuff. But, I mean, you can also... You can read that as being a character who's inconsistently written, which is probably the accurate read. But (laughs) you can also read that as a character who is trying and learning, you know, because people, individuals, human beings, Klingons, are going to continue to make mistakes. And I think that if you do see an ally who makes a mistake, that's, it's not the time to yell at them it's not the time to to berate them for anything but you know make a correction talk to them about it explain and while it is not anyone's job to educate an ally you can still help you can point them in the right direction and i think Mm -hmm. that's probably what Worf needed a little bit more on the enterprise d Yeah, so that is actually in the outcast where he says that, and he says uh, that poker's a woman's game. All those wild cards, they support a weak hand. Man's game has no wild cards. And then Crusher goes, let me get this straight. Are you saying it's a woman's game because women are weak and need more help? And Worf goes, yes. And then Crusher goes, and just this afternoon, I was insisting to one of the Janai that those attitudes were but a distant memory. So Crusher kind of calls him out in that situation. Because she's the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like one of the really like the easiest ways, I mean, it's not always comfortable. It sometimes causes conflict to be an ally is to draw, to try and challenge when you see those attitudes presented in your own group, like sexist jokes or racist jokes or other things. And Jay Smooth has a great video about this, that like the best way to have this conversation is to focus on the remark and like, don't be like, you're a sexist, but like that thing that you just said was sexist and here's why to talk about the actual action instead of casting the whole person. Cause a lot of times the person just never even thought about it. Yeah. And when you are an ally, it is hard to get yourself to do it. But if you are ever called out, when you are ever called out on something, try not to be defensive. (laughs) Try to listen to it because that's everybody's initial reaction, right? It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to both of you, Mm -hmm. right? Where you just be like, no, I didn't. I'm not that way. And but you need to stop and listen and say, oh, I understand now why this comment, this phrase is sexist or racist or ableist or whatever you're being called out for, and you learn from that encounter, and then you should go and do more of your own research and educate yourself. And then I think Andy shared this this image recently on Facebook that says the best apology is changed behavior. Mm-hmm. So then you, you look inward and you try and, you know, remove a piece of language from your vocabulary, or you try to not do this thing that bothered somebody anymore 
and just adjust, making a little adjustment to yourself that can help the entire perception of a marginalized group is worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's the inconvenience of learning to change a word is almost never as bad as experiencing a hurtful or that like hurtful or offensive word is to someone who lives in that community hearing it all the time. And if like you as one person can just do one thing to make something better, it it, it shouldn't really be that hard. So yeah, apologize and listen and try to do better. Any other any other final tips for people trying to be allies? We're we're gonna put these links that we talked about in our show notes. Um, so there's there's some more tips in there. But any other things off the bat? What would you tell Bashir? <laughs> Sorry, Bashir, you just became our ally. Bad example. <laughs> no. O'Brien also. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe a little. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Jonathan Archer. Yeah. Quark. Quark. Archer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Quark's redeemable, but uh, <laughs> I, I I think just I, I think Bashir and O'Brien do get better near the end yeah, of the series, of and course, it's yeah. when they start shutting up and listening. I, mm-hmm. That's that's usually the best advice: shut up and listen. That, that, that is, if if you Google, you know, how to be a good ally, number one on every list you'll find is stop talking and listen. Yeah, and then like. If you do have a platform, try to help share that platform with people who you're trying to ally with. I used it before, but I really like the the phrase amplify. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, yeah, so uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. So um, it was great talking about Star Trek's male allies with you, but this is just one of the many topics being discussed on the Trek FM network recently. So here is a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. You know, Star Trek All Access gives you a great acronym, though. Star! Star, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Star! <laughs> yeah, the upward angle on the... Yeah, totally get it. The orb. I don't know if obsessive love is really love because it's... I, I, I think it's more about possession. Yeah, and for yeah. Ducat, she's a possession of his, not really a relationship of his. The 602 Club. But yeah, Evan Peters has way too much fun with this character. I mean, he's really embracing it, really embracing it, and just always brings a smile to my face when I see him. Saturday Morning Trek. The 30 seconds that we spent on Scotty singing probably could have been used with a really fun... Uh, why are all these women in, in security uniforms standing around us? Rather than just, you're more handsome than ever. Yeah, that, <laughs> what was that about? And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Uh, we also wanted to just let you know about the Trek FM Patreon and the Women at Warp Patreon. So Trek FM is a listener-supported network, and you can help keep the Star Trek discussion coming by pledging a donation at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. If you'd like to support Women at Warp directly, we also have our own Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash women at warp. And that just helps us do things like uh, spread the 
word about the show. Uh, it helps us with our hosting our own website and upgrading some of our equipment. And so every little bit helps. Uh, one of the big things it does is it helps us go to conventions. So um, if you are going to be at Star Trek Las Vegas, all four of our regular crew are going to be there and we would love to meet you. We're hosting a meetup. The actual date and location time is to be determined. But whether you're at the convention or you're able to just stop by uh, for that, that would be awesome to come to hang out with you. Yeah, there is a Facebook event for that meetup already. And so if you're interested, check that out. You can get to it from our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash women at warp. And if you say you're interested or going, you will get the updates when there is a specific date, time and location. Absolutely. So um, if you're looking for other places to find our podcast on the interwebs, we are on Twitter at Women at Warp and we're also at womenatwarp.com and you can email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. If you feel like leaving us an iTunes review, that would also be awesome. Um, Good reviews help us be seen by more people. Uh, Less good reviews help us know what we could be doing better. So uh, we'd love to always hear your feedback. So um, thanks a lot for that. So before we finish off, Alex, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? Sure. You can find me on uh, Twitter at TheAlexNap. You can, if you enjoy the dulcet tones of my voice, I am also a regular on the Forbes tech podcast, The Premise, which you can find uh, anywhere, you know, podcasting apps stuff and uh i also um edit our science section at forbes.com slash science for some awesome uh science articles many of them written by awesome women scientists fabulous and how about you sue yeah you can find me on twitter at spaltor that's s-p-a-l-t-o-r or over at anomalypodcast.com and I'm Jara, and you can find me on Twitter at Jara Penguin, that's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin, or on Tumblr at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com. Thank you so much for joining us.